0: Well, brothers and sisters, Hebrews is one of my favorite books of the Bible, because in many ways, it's a really helpful guide for why we have the Bible. And what I mean by that is what Hebrews is doing, both in our passage today and and throughout the whole book, is he's showing us that the scriptures are all about one thing. They're all about Jesus. And, And it's about how Jesus is really the best. He's better and he's the best. The whole book is actually, in many ways, one big sermon. It's one big sermon that was delivered about the greatness of Jesus from all the scriptures. And a lot of commentators think this probably was a sermon. They think it was probably a sermon that was published, you know, back in the days before the young people had their technologies like cassette tapes and sermon audio. The way you got a sermon out, the way you got what the pastor said out, was you had to go to the printer and you printed up what the pastor said. And that's probably what happened here. That's probably what the Holy Spirit did here. We probably got this book because the Holy Spirit inspired the words that were spoken, but then they were printed out for us and preserved by the Holy Spirit as one beautiful model example for how to read the Bible. Because that's what, that's what we're going to talk about today, how to read the Bible like Christians. Uh, in chapter 2, it talks about, we, we think this was probably written by a disciple of the apostles. Chapter 2 talks about the things we have heard. So it's probably talking about things they heard from the apostles to some extent. But again, this is a beautiful example of how to read the Bible like Christians because that's the thing. This book, is it's like a pamphlet, but it's one big sermon. And it's one big sermon proving one point. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He's the substance of what the Old Testament promised. And as one of my professors put it, he's really better. He's really better. And so we don't know when this book was written for sure, but we have a pretty good guess that it was written sometime after most of the apostles had died. It was probably written to a second generation or third generation of Christians. So these were kids who had been in the households of First generation believers in the book of Acts, when the apostles had gone out and baptized the households, these were probably kids who were baptized with the households. But now chapter 13 tells us Timothy is still alive, but it's probably in a time when most of the apostles are dead. And it's in a time when most of those kids who were baptized in the households are probably wondering, okay, mom and dad converted to this faith and it was great for them, but why would we stick with it? Why would we stick with it? You see, these kids grew up in a time right after Pentecost, during the time when the apostles were going around and baptizing households, and they were baptized with them, and they grew up in the Christian church. They grew up receiving all the benefits of being part of God's church. They grew up, chapter 6 tells us, they had been enlightened. So that's probably talking about baptism. They had tasted of the heavenly gift. They'd probably taken the supper. And they'd shared in the Holy Spirit. They'd probably heard the word preached their whole lives. But even though these kids had all the blessings of belonging to the church, they lived in a culture where it would have been tempting to look around at what everybody else is doing and think, man, everybody else is having way more fun at church. And what I mean by that is they're living in a culture where everybody else is having a lot more fun at their worship services Both Jews and Greeks are are doing animal sacrifices. Both Jews and Greeks are getting to go to church and they get to slaughter an animal and they get to eat and they get to dance and they get to have blood tossed everywhere. And so they get to feel and touch and smell their faith in a way that Christians didn't to some extent. We've got the sacraments, sure but we don't get to have all this blood and guts and stench everywhere. Why can't we do that? See, everybody else's worship service feels a little bit like prom meets county fair meets citywide barbecue for whatever God you're worshiping. I mean, it's fun. It's fun. You bring in an animal, you all get to eat it, you all get to have this this great time touching what you believe. And the question these second and third generation Christians are probably asking themselves is, well, the Old Testament talks about sacrifices and priests and rituals and, and tabernacles. Wouldn't it be great if we could get back to those things? Sorry. So one of, one of my profs loves to talk about how wouldn't it be great if is one of the worst things you could possibly ask in church history. Wouldn't it be great if is how we get away from what the word tells us to do and how we start adding what we think the word wants us to do but what we just really feel like doing. And that's, that's what these second and third generation Christians are doing. Wouldn't it be great if we could just go back to killing goats on Sunday? Wouldn't that be fun? Just like bring a bleeder up the aisle and put them up and, and slice them open and, and have a lunch. That'd be fun. I feel like that would be more real to me. I feel like I would feel closer to God if we did that. And, and I feel like I would feel more forgiven if we did this stuff. Why do we have to worship like Acts 2.42 talks about? Acts 2.42 says there are four things in worship service. The teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And that's it. Why do we have to worship like that? Why can't we do something that's more real and felt and smelt? And what Hebrews is going to show us ironically Ironically, this is is the funniest part of the passage, is because we have Jesus, even though we can't see and, 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 and touch him like maybe Thomas did, because we have Jesus and because of where Jesus is, we have the real thing. We have the real thing. We have something that's better and more real and closer to God than any of those sacrifices ever got anybody. He'll say at the end, We were talking about this in the narthex, but he'll say this at the end. We've come to a better mountain. We've come to the real Jerusalem, to the real feast, because Christ gives us the right to be in heaven with God before God's throne. That's what we're doing in worship. We're coming to the real heaven before God's throne. And we have an altar whom those who serve the tent have no right to touch, is what he's going to say later, and no right to eat. So even though the Old Testament stuff all looks really fun, even though the Old Testament looks like it's more real because you can taste and touch and smell it, all that Old Testament stuff was really a picture of Jesus. And so in reality, Jesus is the real thing, and that means there's no going back. The example I like to use is if you're walking towards Wendy's on a hot day, and you're sweating, and there's, I mean, it's gross, and you're walking towards this Wendy's, and you see a big picture of a Frosty in the window, that picture of a Frosty is good news, because it tells you what's inside the Wendy's. It tells you that you're going to go into Wendy's, and you're going to buy a Frosty. So when you're looking at the Frosty, and you're looking at the window, you're excited, and it's telling you something good. But nobody in their right mind would get into the Wendy's buy the frosty, look at it, throw it in the trash and go over to the window and start licking the window. That would be dumb. <laughs> you can't do that. There's no going back in Jesus. You have the real thing. And what Hebrews is telling these, these people that are trying to go back to the old Testament is there's no going back. Stop trying to lick the window. You have the real thing. So that's a really long introduction. That's a really long introduction, but we're going to look at this in two brief points this morning, verses one through three and two brief points. First, God speaking, God speaking, and secondly, the real thing. So God speaking and the real thing. First, God speaking. Look with me again at this phrase. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so the first thing that we note is the Old Testament was God speaking. It was God It was God who came to Adam and Eve in the garden when they had sinned and first began to reveal the gospel to them. It was God who spoke about the gospel to the Holy Fathers and the patriarchs and and the prophets, and it was God who spoke the gospel, and he foreshadowed it through the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. And so what we should realize when we read the phrase, long ago at many times and in many ways, what we should realize is not, like some of our brothers and sisters in other traditions like to claim, that the point of this is is that God related to his people in a bunch of different ways over a bunch of different times, and therefore we just happen to be in the time that Jesus is the Savior. That's not what we're reading. What we're reading is that God gave us all the scriptures, all of Adam and Eve's, the promise in the garden, all of Abraham and Moses and all the judges, and all the kings, and all the prophets, and and all the priests, and all the exile, everything. He gave it not to tell us a bunch of different things, but to tell us one thing. He gave it to tell us one thing, the salvation that comes in Jesus. And, And so it's one plan. The many times and many ways is not here to emphasize the variety of Scripture. Scripture does have a variety. I'm not saying that all these books aren't a little different. But they're all given by God to tell us that one story, that one story. And, and so what Hebrews is doing here is emphasizing the unity of the scriptures, not the diversity. Another example. So if your friend comes up to you and it's the middle of the week and you're throwing a party and your friend happens to walk by and says, I didn't know you were doing that. Sometimes what you can tell him is, well, I told you like 30 times last week. You just weren't listening. When you, when you use the phrase, I told you like 30 times, the point is not that you spoke 30 different things, but that you spoke 30 different times in 30 different ways about the one party. So the point of saying I, I spoke to you 30 different times is not, oh, uh, I, I told you all these other things and now we're just doing this. It's, I warned you about this and you didn't listen. And, and that's what Hebrews is talking about. You told your friend in great detail. God spoke In great detail. God gave us all the Old Testament as great detail about what he was going to do in his son. All history was about Jesus. And all history was about the mystery of the gospel hidden through the ages. The eternal purpose that God purposed in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what we'll look at in light of that next week in chapter 2. Is in chapter 2 where Hebrews is going to go with that is if, if the Old Testament is all about Jesus, then our job is to listen to what the Old Testament is saying. If, if all redemptive history was God talking in great detail about one thing, then our job is to pay attention to that one thing it's saying. And, and so if we try to go back to the external things of the law, if we try to go back to those sacrifices, we're going to miss the thing that the law was always pointing to. We're going, to go, we're going to throw away the frosty so that we can lick the window. But now let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 real quick. Verse 2. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God spoke to us in his Son. And, and his Son is the one From, by, through, and for whom the creation was made. And the Son is the one to whom creation owes all its glory and praise. And again, notice, the Son is the one who was always appointed to be the heir. That was always the plan. The Son was appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Before the world was made, in eternity, the Son was always supposed to inherit creation. And this goes back to what we were saying a minute ago. Christ is the one all history was about. And, and when God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, he was telling them in great detail about the coming of his son. That many times in many ways was God speaking in great detail. But now he's spoken through his son. And that means that also he was getting us ready. When he was speaking in great detail, he was getting us ready for the last days because that's the other implication of our passage today, is that we're in the last days right now. We're in the finished work of Christ, and that means these are the last days. These are the latest and greatest. Christ is the author of the ages, and he's the one all the ages were about, and that means they end with him. And that's why Hebrews says God spoke. God spoke in Jesus. One thing we like to talk about in Reformed churches a lot is the idea that When God gives new revelation, new speaking, God only does that at the same time that he's doing something new redemptively. So God only speaks when he does something new. God reveals something new about redemption when he has done something new for our redemption. And that's that's why we have a Bible. That's what the Bible is. It's God speaking at the time he does redemptive things. So God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden and he promises the seed of the woman. He starts, he he first tells the gospel. He promises the gospel. He starts the gospel promise and so he speaks it. He speaks something, he does something. He does something, he speaks something. And the same thing happens with Noah. God advances the story of salvation. He shows us what salvation is gonna look like. It's gonna be salvation for the people in the ark and destruction for everybody else. So God speaks something and he does something. He does something and he speaks something. God calls Abraham out and he expands the story. He moves the gospel story forward. God moves the gospel story forward in Abraham and he promises Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations and in you all the world's going to be blessed. And and the promise is that as he gives him this son, this son is going to be in the line of promise. Eventually from this line is going to come the Messiah. So again, it's God speaking something and then doing something, doing something and speaking something. God only speaks when he does something new. God did that, did that for Moses. God brings his people, his, his church in exile out of Egypt and into the promised land, and he gives them the law so that they can live in this land and await the coming Messiah from uh, or who's going to be born under the law? He speaks something. And he does something. He does something. And he speaks something. I know this is repetitive, but it's got a point. God did this throughout all history. All the Bible is God speaking something, and doing something, it's doing something, and speaking something. And so, after the Old Testament closes, and after a long period of silence, long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God having spoken to our fathers, in these last days He spoke. He spoke in his son. God spoke in great detail in the past about his son. And now he has spoken in his son. So in sending his son, God has done something and he's spoken something. He's spoken something and he's done something. God has spoken in his son and his son is the final word. And that means that these are the last days. There's no newer days. In Acts 2, when Peter at Pentecost is talking about the prophet Joel, and he says, the last days are here, he's he's dead serious. And that's because he understands something important. Jesus is the last word, and these are the last days. Jesus is the ultimate. Jesus is the ultimate, the last revelation. Jesus was what the first word in the garden was pointing toward, And Jesus is the last word. But that's good news. I know that was a long point, but that's good news. Here's the point of all this. The point of all this is there's nothing more to look forward to. If God has spoken in his son and his son is the last word, then that means that there's no more redemption to look forward to. You have it. You have the latest and greatest in salvation technology. This is the last thing God's going to release. His son. He spoke in his son. And that means that even at the judgment day, even a new creation, when you're raised with Christ, that's not something new. It's a recognition of what you already have. God spoke in his son. It's done. It's already done. You already have it in him. Jesus is the last word and these are the last days. And that's why one church father, when one church father translated this passage, he actually said, in these newest of days, God has spoken in his son. If you have Jesus, that's it. That's it. You got it. If you have Jesus, that's it. You have the last word God has ever spoken. And that brings us to our second point, real briefly. Second point. And this one's going to be briefer. The real thing. The real thing. Read with me again, verse 3. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In Jesus, you don't just have the last word, you don't just have the final thing God said, the only thing you're ever going to need. You have the real thing. That's the problem we came up with this morning is is that the question of these second and third generation Christians is, why can't we have the real thing? The biggest problem with not having a tabernacle and priests and an altar and sacrifices and all the rest of that stuff is it can't feel like you have the real religion. It doesn't feel like you have the real religion. That stuff looks more real when they're cutting open the animal. But what Hebrews is telling us is we do have the real thing. We have three glorious truths about who Jesus is, followed by one glorious truth about what he did. But first, let's look at these three glorious truths about who Jesus is. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And that means, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You have God in Jesus He's the exact imprint of God's nature because he's God. And that means in Jesus, we see God in Jesus. The disciples beheld the glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth in Jesus. You have God and you see God. Maybe not right now physically because he's in heaven, but you have God. You really have him. And just to make sure we know that Jesus is God. He upholds everything by the word of his power. He's God. You have God. You have the real thing. And the point of all of this is, if you have Jesus, even if you don't have a fabric tent and a wooden box and priests throwing animal blood everywhere and hairy, bleeding, screaming animals and a great bonfire on a stone table with animal guts burning and meat roasting, even if you don't have that, even if all you get is the word, prayer, Sacraments and alms, that's all you get, the fellowship, even if that's all you get, we have something more real, because we have God. We have God. But that brings us, or that's because we have Jesus, and that means we have God himself. But after these three glorious truths about who Jesus is, we have one glorious truth about what he did. Read with me again, verse 3. So we have the real thing. We read three glorious truths about him. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And now here comes the glorious truth about what he did. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Like I said at the beginning, we're going to get to verse 4 next week and talk about why he's talking about angels. But for now, we'll leave it at this. Earlier on in verse 3, we had three glorious truths about who Jesus is. Now we have one glorious truth about what he did. And what he did is he made purification for sins. He purified you from your sins. And more importantly, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You have God himself, and that's real enough. But even more than that, we have one more ama- amazing truth. Jesus forgave your sins. Your sins are really dealt with. Because you have the real thing, Jesus also really took care of your sins. He really did away with them at the cross. And the reason you know all this is true, and this is why we spaz- or I spazzed out a couple minutes ago about he sat down, The reason that this is so important, the reason you know all of this is true, that you have the real thing, that you have real forgiveness, is because Jesus sat down. We're going to look more in detail at that in chapters 9 through 10. Chapters 9 through 10 are going to make a big deal about the fact that Jesus sat down because it's a really crazy truth. Jesus is the real thing. And that means his ministry, his priestly ministry, is better than anything that came before in all redemptive history. And that's because Jesus sat down. Jesus is your sitting priest. And that's a big deal because no other priest sat down. Priests in the Old Testament were always standing. They were always sacrificing something. They were always lighting things and baking things and doing things. Because all that the Old Testament priests did didn't actually take away sin. Those sacrifices and ceremonies of the law weren't the real thing. They were pictures of Jesus. Those animals they killed didn't take away sins. Jesus did. And that's why in all the furniture that God had Moses make, God had Moses make a lot of furniture when you think about it. God had Moses make... Veils and curtains and rods and carrying poles and, ta- and, and bowls and lanterns and, and altars, all that. You know the one thing Moses never made for the priests? He never made a chair. Moses never made a chair for the priests because the priests never could sit down. Jesus has a chair. Jesus is God His ministry takes you not just inside some flannel tent, but to the real presence of God in heaven, in the real tabernacle. And Jesus has a chair there. Jesus has a chair there because he's better. And that means that the call today is that we stop looking for anything better. The call is we stop looking for anything better. No other name is powerful enough to save you. No other sacrifice is as worthy as his. And and no other sacrifice is going to get you where Jesus gets you. Jesus gets you to heaven before the Father, before his throne. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he brought you in because priests bring people in. He brought you in before God, before God's real presence in heaven. And his work is finished. He sat down, it's done, and he brought you in with him. Tonight in Catechism, we're going to look at how thoroughly finished the work of Christ is, and what we're going to see is that Christ's life and death on your behalf are so thoroughly worthy that he fully earned heaven and new creation life for you, and nothing you do is going to add to that, and no sin you do is going to take away from it. It's done. It's a complete package. It's finished. He sat down. And, and But what we're going to leave today, this morning with, what we're going to leave off this morning is that the call is to rest in that. Christ's work is finished, and we're supposed to rest in it. Jesus is God's final redemptive word. He's the real thing. He's better, and he's enough. You're forgiven in him. That's God's word to us today. Would you join with me in thanking him? At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.